Can you just start off by uh, saying your name and your title as you would like to be addressed? Uh, my name is Jay Sulia. Um, I'm a private investigator, primarily doing background checks for private parties. And through the years, I've done bodyguard work, security work, police work. Uh, and I followed uh, this particular person's career, which is we all know him now as Storm Ireland, a.k.a. about 20 different other names. I think the current one is... Uh, uh, Christy, Christy Gabriel. Gabriel. Christy Marciano was the last one I saw. The last one. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's always changing. He likes that Italian kind of sting to it for some reason. Uh, the fact of the matter is he's now, what, 50 years old? And uh, he's still... <laughs> I mean, you have to admit, this is very entertaining. He's still pretending after 20 years, 25 years, to still be a white teenage supermodel when, in fact, he's a black man. All right, stop. I'm Noel Black. I'm Jake Brownell. This is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadow of America's mountain. If you're from Colorado Springs, you're probably familiar with a version of this narrative. In 1990, a 17-year-old woman from Greece named Cheyenne Weatherly enrolled at Coronado High School. She joined the cheerleading squad, made friends, and flirted with boys. But when her stubble began to poke through her pancake makeup, the jig was up, and Cheyenne Weatherly turned out, so the story went, to be Charles Doherty, a 27-year-old black man from the south side of Colorado Springs. It was the stuff of national tabloids and daytime talk shows. In the quarter century that followed, Cheyenne slash Charles would come to be known as Storm Arison, Shannon Ireland Trump, Shannon Fox, Shannon Ocasis Trump Ireland, Terry Anderson, Kimber Ireland, and at least a dozen other names, depending on who you ask. You'll hear some of these names during the story, but for our purposes, we'll refer to her as Storm Arison, which is her legal name and the one that she chose. We'll also be referring to her as her, though you may hear others in this story using masculine pronouns. By way of disclaimer, this episode contains frank and sometimes graphic discussions about gender and biological sex. In some ways, this is a detective story that's been told many times over. There's the con artist, the dupes, the sleuth who unravels it all. But the unmasking only raises more questions, and the real mystery is never solved. Let's start again from the beginning with the private investigator, Jay Sulia. He was one of the first people to encounter Storm before she made national tabloids for impersonating a high school cheerleader. And this is his version of the story. This was back in 1989. I had just completed bodyguard school. I decided to run an ad in uh, the Gazette advertising my services as a per personal protection specialist for somebody that may need it, you know, and I was big and I just won the state powerlifting championships and I was very capable you, you, of, of that type of situation. Uh, all of a sudden I get this call, you know, and from the, you know, the ad, I get a response and it's this British lady. Uh, her name is Janet Bandy and she explains to me that she is the agent for Kathy Ireland, which was at that time a swimsuit model on, on the front of Sports Illustrated, and that she also represented uh, her younger sister, which at that time was named Shannon Ireland. Jay was interested, and he went to meet the young model at her home in Colorado Springs. Okay, I, uh, I knock on the door, I hear uh, shuffling, I hear whispers, uh, see shadows you know on the window uh, on the on the curtains and uh i'm getting kind of skittish myself and i'm thinking about leaving us so i'll knock one more time and i'm going to leave because it was kind of creepy it was snowing that night it was actually pretty deep snow about six inches of snow the wind was blowing so it's almost like a I hate to say it like a horror story uh, and then uh there was just a one light on the porch and it was also covered with snow so it was kind of creepy in the first place. Um, and then I knocked a second time and everything got quiet. And I said, well, I guess I'm gonna leave. And uh, as I'm about ready to leave, 
the door swings open and then all this warm air hits me and then this dark figure okay there's some christmas lights in the background and the dark figure swings the door open you see you can't make out the face real well because it's dark but there's big hair and it goes down it's wavy kind of blondish reddish and it goes down to about uh, near her breasts and uh, she's got black lace gloves on she's got a red skirt with a black belt thick black belt a mini skirt a red mini skirt and then uh, lacy type of, of leggings going up. So it's a sexy outfit. Tall, I mean, I'm standing there. Of course, she was a little bit higher than me, above me on the porch. She was looked at least as tall as I was. And then this breezy, heavy voice goes up. Oh, you must be Che. Please come on in. I go in and um, she's nervous and it's dark, the kitchen's dark. And like I said, there's just a little bit of lighting and you can see her you know, walking back and forth, pacing back and forth nervously. And, she, and then she goes, would you like something to drink? Water, Coke, uh, Coke. So she pours the Coke, brings me the Coke and she sits right next to me and um, starts telling me about her life you know, why she came here to Colorado Springs, because she had a boyfriend in New York City. They had gotten into a car wreck, and her father had had enough, whose name was David Ireland, had had enough and sent her here to be closer to... David also had an estate at the Broadmoor, and that's where the mother, Ruth, stayed. Sent her here... um, she was explaining that she had other escorts that she didn't get along with, so they were going to get fired, um, blah, blah, blah. This, this whole scheme things that set basically set me up for all of this. And then, you know, toward, let's say that went on for about an hour, and then toward the end of the, uh, the end, she stood up and she started pacing back and forth in front of the... Uh, the kitchen counter, just walking back and forth. And I, you know, I kind of like, well, what, what's wrong with you? She goes, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I go, uh, if I'm going to be your bodyguard, you got to be able to tell me anything and I'll keep it between us. So, um, which this really took me by surprise. She blurts out, I've got a crush on you. And I'm like, I said, what? I said, How can you have a crush on me? You don't even know me. And she starts crying. And she's got tears running down her face. So I'm thinking, this is real. So I walk up to her and actually hug her. I go, don't worry, things will be all right. You'll be fine, right? And then, uh, but I got to (laughs) go. You know, I got to go. I got a kid and wife at home. Sulia accepted the job. And for months, he attended to Storm's every whim. Storm seemed to be living a relatively normal life, as far as wealthy teenage supermodels go. She had an agent, a limo driver, a bodyguard. She dated, she did photo shoots. She even joined the cheerleading squad for a local semi-pro football team called the Colorado Springs Spirit. The illusion was convincing. He surrounds himself with a group of people, including myself and the limousine driver, to make this illusion real, especially to all of the kids at that time was kids from high school. So the illusion became real to them. It became real to the parents of these kids that this was a real supermodel who was related to Donald Trump and the half-sister of Kathy Ireland. But Jay became suspicious. Months passed and he failed to receive a contract or even a paycheck. He talked to the limo driver who was also waiting on payment. Jay decided to do some digging. Acting on a hunch, Jay called the manager of the Spirit Cheerleading Squad, and she told Jay that Storm had joined after graduating from Harrison several years earlier. This didn't make any sense to Jay. If Storm was a rich supermodel for New York City, why would she have gone to a public school on the south side of Colorado Springs? So I had pictures of, of, of Shannon. We had done some photo shoots and so forth. I said, you know what? I'm going to take these pictures down to Harrison High School. So I took these pictures down to Harrison High School of this woman, uh, Shannon. And I 
passed them around to all the teachers. I, I said, uh, first of all, I go to the counselor. I go, do you recognize who this person is? She goes, no. Let me grab some of the other teachers. And, and next thing you know, I got six, seven teachers surrounding me. And we're all passing pictures back and forth. And uh, they all kept saying the same thing. That face looks familiar, but not the girl. I looked at the teachers and I went, what if this were a guy? And then all their eyes got real big. And then one woman starts snapping. Her oh, I know who that is. I know who that is. That's it. That, that, that. He was our first male cheerleader. Oh, what's his name? What's his name? She goes, oh, come on back. Come on back to the, to the back room. We'll, we'll look through all the, uh, the yearbooks. So she takes a stack. I take a stack. I start thumbing through it and thumbing through it. And I, I run across them. Like, oh, my God. My head just starts spinning. And I took the book. And I showed it to, to Jane. Her name was Jane, the counselor. I go, is this the person you were thinking of? She goes, that's him. Look. And we got the pictures and compared it to the, 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 the face on the, uh, the yearbook and so forth. See? The jawline's the same. The eyes are the same. It's Charles. I went, oh, my God. First thing I thought, i got to tell everybody, especially the kids he went to the prom with. He, I mean, he went on dates and, and, and did stuff. You know what I'm saying? So I called the parents. None of them believed me. I called Betsy. She goes, no. I go, yeah. And, and nobody would believe me. That is the funniest thing. I finally said, I'm calling the cops. Sulia did call the cops. Storm was arrested on an outstanding warrant from an earlier incident. And Storm's friends and associates were briefed on her true identity. She was not the half-sister of Kathy Ireland, not the niece of Donald Trump, not from New York, not wealthy. She was a Colorado Springs native from a middle-class family, a graduate of Harrison High School. No one wanted to press charges. Less than a year later, Storm changed her name from Shannon to Cheyenne and enrolled at Coronado High School just across town. This was to become the infamous cheerleading incident. After seven days as a student, she was arrested and charged with criminal impersonation and forgery the national and local media had a feeding frenzy. The pun-filled headlines included, As con or cover girl, Storm's career had legs. Flat chests and high hopes. School can be a real drag. The broad was a fraud. Stormwatch, an update on a model citizen. Though this was the last time Storm would don a cheerleading outfit, the arrests and media attention didn't stop her from living her version of reality. Uh, at the time, I was a freelance photographer, and I was called... Uh, by a young lady named Storm Ireland. Uh, I talked to her a couple times on the phone, and uh, she told me that she wanted. In, she was in the process, actually, of interviewing photographers for a, a possible trip to Puerto Rico. Ernie Ferguson met Storm in 1995, several years after the incident at Coronado High School. Storm was once again presenting herself as a supermodel and rounding up a dream team of recruits to produce a swimsuit calendar in Puerto Rico. So I went and talked to her. Um, saw some portfolios that looked really good. Uh, there were some uh, magazine covers, not the big ones, but there were some magazine covers. Photography was pretty good. You know, it wasn't bad. And uh, so I kind of signed on as her official photographer. And basically she put a team together. Uh, we had a production assistant and, you know, everything. Everybody had an assistant. This is how the scam or fantasy, depending on how you look at it, went. She would recruit a production team, which she called the Dream Team, enticing them with the opportunity to travel to an exotic beach destination and work with a world-famous supermodel. She'd promise them contracts, she'd give them gifts, buy fancy dinners. She had credit cards, she entertained us. We drank mum champagne, went to nice restaurants, had a pretty good time, um, did a lot of shooting. I have maybe thousands of negatives and slides. I don't know how many. As a model, she was convincing. When we would get into a shooting, uh, the thing that amazed me was she really moved like a model. I mean, you can watch these things on TV and you see how models move. She had all the moves. I mean, that you know, you, do, you aren't born with that. You have to develop it. And, uh, you know, the clothes changes and uh, the clothes that she wore, she was as feminine as anyone I've ever seen in my life. You know, so there was no, there was no thought in my mind that something was wrong. It worked like a well-oiled machine, and if you had questions, everybody in the group had questions. No matter what the question was about, there was a really good, solid answer for it. 
Shortly before the Dream Team was set to leave for their Puerto Rican calendar excursion, they did a shoot at Garden of the Gods with the towering red sandstone spires as a backdrop. They hired an outside video production company to film it. One of the videographers recognized Storm and pulled Ernie aside. He said, uh, do you know who that is? And I said, who, who, who is? He said, who, your, who Storm is? I said, well, Storm Ireland, right? He said, no, not exactly. And I said, well, then who is it? And he said, well, you ever hear the name Charles Doherty? And I said, well, who's Charles Doherty? I don't, you know. He said, well, do you remember the cheerleader at Coronado High School that turned out to be a guy? And I said, well, yeah, that was a long time. I was in the 80s or something. He said, well, that's, that's who Storm is. And I said, you're kidding me. You're joking me. No, really, that's who. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I think we've all been scammed. <laughs> and uh, so it pretty well blew apart from that point. But up to that point, we had had a pretty good time. We were going to went out and uh, one time looked at helicopters. We were going to take a helicopter flight down to the sand dunes. And I don't know where the hell we're going to land down there, but that was a sand dune. You know, you know, the dream was there, you know, but it was a con, and uh, you know it, that's all it was. I mean, you know, I'm not going to go out and you know slip my wrist with a butter knife for sure. I, I got a kick out of it really when I found out. I thought, God, are you kidding me? I can't believe I did this. You know. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, it's it's pretty brilliant scam. Uh, you talk to the policeman, and I don't remember his name either. That uh, has had uh, her case for all these years. Um, she's good. You know, this is a good scam. The name of that policeman is John Amundsen, a retired detective who worked in the Colorado Springs Police Department Fraud and Forgery Unit for 14 years. I had been there for about five years, and I was contacted by another officer uh, who just made sergeant and was advised that a party that he'd investigated several years ago for a myriad of other unrelated crimes uh, was back at it again, but this time had graduated into uh, credit cards and checks. Again, this was 1995, though Arison had already been arrested multiple times and had served two years of probation for criminal impersonation and third-degree forgery. It seemed to the officer who had been handling Storm's case, Sergeant Driscoll, that her crimes had gotten more serious. Suspecting that she had been financing her high-rolling lifestyle with bad checks and credit card fraud, he took the case to Amundsen. This videotape comes through, and this guy talks to Sergeant Driscoll, and you end up getting the case. Right. Sergeant Driscoll, because I was in the fraud unit, take a look, because if he's doing this, he's doing something else. Well, I had to agree with him. He probably was, but what? And it was a while later that uh, we got contacted by uh, a restaurant that used to be in town here, Anthony's, real nice little uh, Italian restaurant at the time. And uh, they said they'd just gotten this credit card information back and that the credit card was stolen. And uh, it was a rather large amount. It was, uh, I believe, well over $1,000 for a meal. When we talked to the manager, he said that he had had this supermodel in the restaurant with her uh, team, her crew. And he wasn't sure of the exact details, but it had something to do with a photo shoot. And they were having a party to celebrate. The waitress went to collect the check. Oh, I don't have my uh, credit card with me. But can I use your phone to make a phone call? I need to call my manager. Well, we're not sure who was called, but a male party or a person identifying themselves as a male party uh, got on the phone and said, oh, yeah, she's a stupid dork. She forgets her credit cards all the time. Here's the number. And so they take the card out. They give it to her and just set it on the table. They have no idea who signed it. So we can't, we've got nobody. We've got 15 people at the meal. We only know the name of one of them. We had no idea who actually signed it. And without knowing that, there wasn't much we could do at the time other than document everything and hope that we'd get a break later. Amundsen was pretty sure this was Storm's doing, but he couldn't pin it on her. So he followed her as best he could for the next few years working to build a case. Again, her MO was always the same. The dream team, the calendar shoot in the tropics, the comped rooms, the fake and stolen credit cards. 
Amundsen knew what Storm was up to and nabbed her occasionally, but she'd just skip Bond, change names, and keep it rolling. He had just gotten back from a photo shoot in uh, Tahiti. He had gone and was staying at the uh, Le Meridian hotel system. He'd go swimming. They rented uh, skidoos. Boats pulling inner tubes, snorkeling, water skiing, uh, deep sea fishing, anything they had available through the hotel. The interesting thing is they were paying for it on this American Express card. Let me talk to my mother and like I said, because the time she got permission to use her company, nobody knows where he's at. You don't know where he's at. Fifteen thousand dollars worth of seizure and flight tickets. We have any probations. And yeah, they were looking at all the time to actually hold it down there in front of And they'd give them eight years. And they started to be witnesses. Well, that's when the Secret Service agents recognized Charles and we got him. By 2001, Storm had committed hundreds of thousands of dollars in check and credit card fraud and skipped a $200,000 bond backed by her parents' home. When Amundsen finally caught up with her, she was hiding out at a motel in Daytona Beach with a boyfriend. Storm was eventually extradited and arraigned in Colorado Springs. But before Storm could stand trial, there were a series of competency hearings. I covered them in 2002 as a reporter for the Colorado Springs Independent. And one of the witnesses the defense called was forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert David Miller. Miller had examined Storm, he said, both physically and psychologically. And he testified that he believed Storm had, perhaps not surprisingly, dissociative identity disorder, which used to be known as multiple personality disorder. But far more significantly, in my mind, was what he said next. He testified that Storm is, and I quote, anatomically hermaphroditic. Hermaphrodite, we learned, is a really outdated term, even for 2002. Since the early 1990s, the preferred scientific term has been intersex, meaning born with sexual anatomy that doesn't conform to what is conventionally thought of as either distinctly male or distinctly female. What struck me then was that if Storm was intersex, as Dr. Miller was suggesting, it called into question the supposed con in which everyone seemed most interested, her, quote, authentic biological gender. Up to that point, and even to this day, stories about Storm inevitably revolved around this punchline. It's a man, baby! From the moment that Storm was caught impersonating a cheerleader at Coronado High School, the story that people were telling was, here's this man, Charles Doherty, who's pretending to be something he's not, a woman. For all the crimes that Storm did commit, fraud, forgery, check-kiting, identity theft, the thing that people were most concerned about wasn't a crime at all, her choice to present as a female. What occurred to me as I was sitting in the courtroom in 2002 was that maybe Charles slash Storm really was Charles slash Storm, if not many others, and that the fraud of her identity might not be a fraud at all. If this was true, it undermined one of the most basic assumptions about the narrative that the media had become obsessed with. And yet, the story of the quote, cross-dressing con man has proven too enticing for the media to resist, and people continue to cast the story in these terms. Listen to this news report from last year, 2013. It's from KOAA, the local NBC affiliate. They're following up on Storm more than 20 years after she broke into the national spotlight. The punchlines are still there but the joke became a pronoun rodeo. Well, it was a story fit for tabloid magazines and daytime talk shows. A shocking pattern of crime and cross-dressing that rocked Colorado Springs for two decades. It's a story that continues to draw interest. Yara Sierra Santos joins us now with more on the high school cheerleader, Storm Arison, who turned out to be a grown man. Oh, turned out to be a grown man. It's a man, baby. This is how stories about Storm are always prefaced. The con is the man passing as female. The piece barely mentions the crimes she actually committed, and this is probably one of the more sympathetic portrayals that we've come across. Storm Arison. He believes in, a, in his lies. Shannon Ireland. He believes who he is. Christy Lombardi. Multiple names, but just one person. Charles Doherty. He believes For the most part, this report gives Storm's story the typical treatment. The reporter and newscasters take a pronoun shotgun approach to labeling her throughout, hoping that something will hit the target. This man, he was he's Charles Christy Lombardi, her con man. Lombardi says she's intersex. She, Lombardi was a man. She now only identifies herself as a woman. Doherty, she, Doherty, Doherty's Christy Lombardi, who she was. Now listen to the end where reporter Sierra Santos knocks on Storm's front door. In a rare moment of candor, Storm herself articulates the crux of her story. 
Because the biggest problem through my whole court thing was, who is it? That was like the one, that's all anybody, I mean, that's the biggest, biggest issue. Every time the story resurfaces, who is it is the question that everyone really wants answered. And it's not just who she is that people are concerned about, it's what she is. People are interested in getting to the bottom of this question, of pinning down her sex and gender in a definitive way. And it was no different for us as we started working on this story, knowing that at least one doctor had identified Storm as, quote, anatomically hermaphroditic, seemed to imply that everyone had been asking the wrong questions and coming up with the wrong answers. We thought it might offer an explanation for why she had dissociative identity disorder and why she became a con artist. In other words, if you were born in a body that had almost no language to describe it and were assigned a gender that didn't feel right and grew up in a culture that didn't tolerate ambiguity, how could you help but feel like your identity is deviant, if not criminal? And why should we be surprised that Storm became one? To test this hypothesis, we went looking for Dr. Robert David Miller. We wanted to ask him about his evaluation of Storm during the 2002 competency hearing, but we learned that he had died in 2004, just a few years after his testimony. After contacting several intersex advocacy groups, we got in touch with Dr. Tiger DeVore, a clinical psychologist and certified sex therapist who was also born intersex. Very simply, uh, intersex are people who are born with um, genitalia that don't conform to what most people think of as normal for male or female. And uh, truthfully, uh, intersex are people who have um, not a mix of genitals, not both sets of genitals, but something between male and female. um, Resting state for mammalian tissue is female, and it takes uh, a whole series of uh, uh, hormonal and physical changes uh, to create uh, or to you know grow male genitalia uh, from what would have been female. So it really is a, a transformational process of masculinization, and the masculinization becomes interrupted uh, at one point or another. So you're born with uh, something between male and female. Devore was quick to dispel our hypothesis about Storm's dissociative identity disorder and any connection between her criminal activity and her biological sex or gender identity. From the standpoint of do intersex people have a higher incidence of of mental illness? Well, as far as we know, uh, intersex people are like all other people. Um, Intersex people come in in every form and and color and background and uh, across all socioeconomic statuses from every country uh, for as long as there have been human beings. So intersex people are just like everybody else. I I can't say that it would be reasonable to uh, draw a conclusion that intersex people suffer any kind of mental illness more than anybody else in the population. It's difficult to say precisely how common it is, but the Intersex Society of North America states on their website that the number of babies born, quote, so noticeably atypical in terms of genitalia that a specialist in sex differentiation is called, is estimated between 1 and 1,500 and 1 and 2,000, which comes out to about between 150,000 and 200,000 people in the U.S. alone. And that's not counting people with, quote, subtler forms of sex anatomy variation, some of which won't show up until later in life. According to author and intersex expert Alice Drager, depending on how you order everything, there are something like 30 different kinds of biological sex. Yet, legally and linguistically, for all intents and purposes, there are two. This has many repercussions for those born intersex. These children's genitals often get surgically altered at birth. This is an intensive procedure and can result in complications later in life. So the question is why do it? According to Tiger DeVore, there's almost never a medical reason to perform this surgery. Most uh, most kids who are born intersex will grow and be perfectly healthy uh, and have you know functioning genitals to some extent uh, and be just fine. And before the 50s, um, there were lots and lots of intersex people who were born who didn't have medical intervention. And most of them, a very, a very small percentage, though, had trouble. But most of them were just fine. So to be clear, even though intersex is relatively common and rarely poses health risks, Doctors would usually rather perform gender reassignment surgery on newborns than allow people to grow up with anatomy that doesn't conform to the gender ideal. According to Alice Drager, and this title is a mouthful, Professor of Clinical Medical Humanities and Bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and author of the book Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex, this shows us just how obsessed our culture is with maintaining a strict division between male and female as the only two possibilities where gender is concerned. Most people do appear to come in one of two types, and their sex matches their gender usually. So it's usually pretty clear what everybody is. And 
a lot of social systems have been developed based on that, um, in part because there are, you know, not every male is the same as every other male and not every female is the same as every other female, but on average, males have certain tendencies, certain behavioral types, certain sexual interests. Females have different ones on average. And so all of these social systems have been set up based on that difference or the perception of that difference. Um, so as a consequence, when the doctors were facing people who they thought of as hermaphrodites, that is, people who didn't fit the male or the female standard sex type, they were really stuck because the social system required that everybody be either clearly male or clearly female. So the medical system was reacting to defend the social order. In order to more clearly define that social order, says Drager, doctors began to impose their own definitions of male and female on the bodies of intersex people. The medical system decided to start using gender for intersex, which was to say, we'll decide who's going to get raised as a boy and who's going to get raised as a girl, and we're going to surgically force them into those categories to make their sex match their gender. And so they did this, again, politically regressive thing, which was to say, we've got to maintain a sexual order that has only two categories, and if we're going to raise you as a boy, we're going to force you to have genitals that look like a boy, and you're going to, if you're female, you're going to be forced to have genitals that look feminine. And they were trying not only to create um, boys and girls that looked convincing, but they were trying also very clearly to raise straight boys and straight girls. So they were trying to force people into um, straightened out categories, as it were. Now here's Dr. C.J. Pascoe, professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. She elaborates on the ways our socially constructed beliefs about binary gender and heterosexuality have made their way into the operating room. Again, some of the depictions of genitalia that follow are graphic and may be unsuitable for some. If a penis is too small at birth, uh, up in, again, up until very, very recently, uh, doctors would determine, call it a micropenis, and, and actually trim it down and make it into a clitoris and decide that that baby was a girl, uh, regardless of, sort of hormone levels, which they couldn't really measure appropriately until later in that child's life anyway, um, or what the chromosomal makeup of, of that child is. And um, with girls, they, they very, very rarely make female genitalia into male genitalia because it's, it's very, very hard to do. So that's, that's not something that's done. But what will happen is if, say, the clitoris is too big or, quote, monstrous, as it's written about in some of the, the writings, um, then doctors will shave down the clitoris uh, in order to make it more appropriately feminine. Um, or if the uh, vaginal opening is, say, a, a cul-de-sac, right, it doesn't go to... Um, uh, a uterus, right? Their their primary concern with that is whether or not it's big enough to um, contain an adult penis for heterosexual intercourse later in life, and and so I I give those examples to illustrate the way in which sort of our notions of heterosexuality inform what we think of as some sort of objective science, right? We're looking at these babies and their genitals and deciding that they're intersex based upon a future prediction of their heterosexuality and how heterosexual people have sex. And Pasco points out that it's not just doctors who are policing gender. She studies the social relationships between language, gender, and power. In her book, Dude, You're a Fag, she looks at the way that young men use homophobic words like fag to reinforce conventional definitions of masculinity. In the KOAA news report, she says, the way that Storm Arison's gender and fraud are conflated is just another instance of how our binary-obsessed culture is unable to tolerate ambiguity. The, the con that everybody was really, really upset about was that they felt conned because, you know, presumably this person has a penis and yet is presenting herself as, as a woman, that that's the real con and everything else is either derivative or, or follows from that, right? So really, it's, it's what we, you know, sociologists would call a gender panic. At the root of gender panic, she says, lies society's deep discomfort with anything that challenges the structure of power and how gender fits into that structure. Pasco notes that while Storm may be intersex, she is also definitely transgender, insofar as she was once defined as a male and now presents herself as a female. It's important to stress that intersex and transgender are not the same thing. Intersex refers to a person's anatomical sex, which is biological, and transgender refers to the way that someone performs their gender, which is social. But falling in between or transgressing the rigid distinctions in either case poses a threat to the social order. On the one hand, right, we, we live in a society that's, that's male-dominated, and if, if 
people's gender and, and presentations of gender are much more fluid, then that calls into question the fact that some people are going to have power over others, right? Like if men can become women, then women can become men. And what happens to sort of patriarchy, right, in that situation, right? It can crumble if we don't have these two stable groups of people. I think it also sort of brings up the fluidity of sexual desire, right? Because a lot of what's happening in this piece is that these guys think she's kind of sexy. Let's go back to the KOAA piece. Whether intentionally or not, the media plays a large role in enforcing gender stereotypes and ostracizing those who don't comply with them, and often in rather subtle ways. Storm Arison. He believes in, a, in his lies. Shannon Ireland. He believes who he is. Christy Lombardi. Multiple names, but just one person. Charles Doherty. So for example, in this piece, in an attempt to simplify the story for viewers and to cut through the confusion created by Storm's many names, the report settles on Charles Doherty, her birth name. The problem with that is that when you imply that Charles is her authentic name, her original identity, you imply that male is her authentic, original sex and gender. Meaning that her gender is just another false identity. That beneath all the makeup and the women's clothes, all the trappings of femininity, there's an essential, irreducible person. A man. Charles Doherty. Storm doesn't get to decide who she is or how we should refer to her. Her birth certificate does. This is common in media coverage of trans people. Last year, in another local incident that became a national news story, Coy Mathis, a six-year-old transgender girl, was denied the right to use the girl's bathroom at school. And again, the media reports attempt to ground the listener by referring to her birth gender. Here's a clip from ABC7 News in Denver. Born a boy, now identified as a girl. A six-year-old from Colorado now at the center of a media frenzy in a lawsuit for being transgender. 7 News reporter Mark Stewart discovering the struggle some families face. Born as a boy, six-year-old Coy is being raised as a little girl. And again, in February of this year, transgender rights activist Janet Mock was on the Piers Morgan show promoting her book when Morgan grilled her about her past, about her transition surgery. In 2009, you meet a man and you fall in love with this man. But there's something you have to tell him, something pretty big you have to tell him that he doesn't know, which is that you used to be yourself a man. After the break, we'll find out how you told him that news and how he took it. Heidi Lewis, professor of feminist and gender studies at Colorado College, spoke about this interview and the controversy that followed it. Janet Mock appeared on Pierce Morgan's television show in order to talk about her book and the 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 wording underneath the screen that you see, you know, the tickers and things like that said was a boy until age 18. And then Pierce or someone who was controlling Pierce's Twitter account tweeted, what would you do if you found out that the person you were with was really a man, the woman that you're with were really a man? And so she was upset by the way that he, in that way, sensationalized the story, used the kind of language that we shouldn't use when we talk about transgender people. So in that we don't want to say they used to be a boy and now they're a woman. Mock returned to the Piers Morgan show to explain why Piers had angered the transgender community with this segment. So I ask you again, why have I been vilified for being transparently supportive of you? I don't get it. Maybe you don't get it because you're not a trans woman. Trans women well, explain are- explain to me. Explain to me what I did wrong. <laughs> what did I do wrong? You called, so before commercial break, we had a lovely conversation and then all of a sudden you said, who was formerly a man. I was a baby. I was assigned male gender because of the appearance of my genitals. As I grew up, I discovered my girlhood, I discovered my womanhood, and I proclaimed and defined myself for myself, as Audre Lorde says. If we do not define Why ourselves- Why didn't you correct me at the time? For, Why didn't you correct me? I did not because I was if scared. you felt that strongly. I did not because scared I was of what? scared. And I wanted to be scared a cordial guest. And I think that that was probably incorrect of me. Awareness of transgender issues in the media has increased noticeably in recent years, thanks in large part to activists like Janet Mock and actress Laverne Cox, a transgender woman who plays a transgender inmate on the show Orange is the New Black. In January, Cox was interviewed on The Katie Couric Show alongside transgender model Carmen Carrera. After Couric asked Carrera questions about her transition surgery, questions which Carrera felt uncomfortable answering, 
Cox explained why this fixation on the transgender body is a problem. And I think that the preoccupation with transition and with surgery objectifies trans people, and then we don't get to really, really deal with the real lived experiences. The reality of, of trans people's lives is that so often we're targets of violence. We experience discrimination disproportionately to the rest of the um, um, community. Um, our unemployment rate is twice the national average. If you're a trans person of color, it's four times the national average. The homicide rate in the LGBT community is highest amongst trans trans women. And if we, if we, when we focus on transition, we don't actually get to talk about those things. As Cox says, there's a lot at stake when it comes to how the media chooses to portray and talk about trans people. Most fundamentally, what's at stake is people's ability to be engaged as full, complex human beings like anyone else. And part of that, as Heidi Lewis says, is the ability to claim an identity for oneself and to not have to constantly defend that identity. It's something that most of us take for granted. I was raised a male, I present myself mostly as a male, and when I introduce myself to people, they don't ask me about my genitals to prove it. This is a luxury that transgender people are not always afforded. Here's Heidi Lewis again. You mentioned self-determination, which is so very important for marginalized people because marginalized people have been named by so many different people. Um, and not just in terms of the actual name, but understood by and, and talked about in a way. Um, and certain people still do not have the right to name themselves or think about themselves in the way that they want to or to demand that other people think about and engage with them the ways that they want to. Certain people just cannot, it's, it disturbs everything people know about everything. And transgender folks do that. You know, you used to be a boy and now you're a woman and that ruins everything that I thought I knew about the world around me because I knew that boys were this and I knew that girls were this and now you're messing that up. So it really has less to do with the person and more to do with us and sort of the way that we need people to conform. What Professor Lewis says, that it has less to do with the person and more to do with us, seems to apply to an even greater extent in the case of Storm Arison. When you take into account gender, sex, name, and race, Storm transgresses almost every category of identity in one way or another. And that makes us uncomfortable because our society, and by default, our language doesn't tolerate that. It's easy to point to the limits of our tolerance where gender is concerned. There are no officially recognized pronouns other than he or she, his or her, for example, in the English language. As professors Lewis and Pasco noted, gender is a category that's bound up with power in our society. So, as a culture, we punish people for not conforming. The larger question beyond gender and sexuality, or that gender and sexuality questions raise, is how free are we, in fact, to determine our own identities? And how do we go about that in a society and in a language that makes those decisions for us? We live in a culture that holds these contradictory myths at its core. The first, the idea of the self-made person. The idea that you can become whoever you want in this society. That we're a culture free from the trappings of class, caste, race, gender, etc. But there's also this deep obsession we have with authenticity, with being who you say you are. Look at the Obama birth certificate kerfuffle, for example. And no matter how we arrive at what we believe is an authentic identity, whether it's a birth certificate, the way the media describes us, or a name we claim for ourselves, it all comes back to language. To understand this relationship between language and the way we see ourselves, we spoke to Jonathan Lee, professor of philosophy at Colorado College. He's written a book about Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst who theorized about the complicated relationship between language and identity. When the infant first recognizes him or herself in a mirror, that mirror image is a kind of wholeness, gives the infant a sense of wholeness that they don't actually have in their lived experience. And it's that gap between what it's like to be an 11-month-old and what the image of myself in the mirror that is coherent and whole at 11 months, um, the gap between those two things is what sets up the ego. That gap only widens as we learn to speak and write. Language, in its ability to express complicated thoughts, feelings, and abstract ideas, becomes the mirror in which we seek to see ourselves reflected. For Lacan, everything after that in terms of child development, everything in terms of how we live our lives, is in relationship to that illusory 
image in the mirror that we take to somehow be ourselves. He quotes the famous line from uh, the poet Rimbaud, I is another, um, because the very sense of who I am is already something different from what I experience myself to be. For Lacan, Lee says, there's a fundamental tension between language and the self at the core of human existence. We are born into society and we inherit its language and social categories to express and define ourselves. Yet our subjective experience of being who we are cannot, as the cliche goes, be fully accurately expressed in words. On some level, language makes us imposters to ourselves. Lacan often quotes uh, a famous line from the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, who famously said that we don't speak language, language speaks us. And in a sense, I don't say my name, my name says me. Right? And once you realize that, there's always going to be a little dissonance between whatever it is I may feel I am and the I that is being socially constructed for me. In a certain way, I think you could see Stormy Arison's case as almost archetypal of what it is to be human. Um, that most of us don't, don't live the incongruities, the dissonances, in quite the extreme way that she has. And most of us don't get into the same kind of extreme trouble uh, that she has. But I think if, if you take Lacan seriously, all of us are dealing with rather similar sorts of things because it's never the case that it's just obvious who we are. In the end, perhaps what troubles or intrigues us most about Storm is not what we see in her or what we can't name, but the fact that she embodies all that we can't see or name in ourselves. What makes us uncomfortable is to see her enacting a kind of terrifying freedom from and of identity. And it's not just about biological sex and gender identity. It's everything. She constantly reinvents herself in the image of what society values most. Beauty, wealth, status, whiteness, sex. And she's successful at it, against all odds. And that scares people. If she can simply make herself into whoever she wants to be, then what's stopping anyone else from doing the same? What good are these designations then? These socially charged distinctions that we use to separate people into different categories, if someone can slip so fluidly between them? And we're all doing this on some level, passing as things that we're not, seeking to embody the same cultural ideals that Storm embodies. She's a mirror in which we see that the idea of authenticity itself is a fraud, that identity is always a construction, if not a con. And seeing this so brazenly enacted makes us uncomfortable because it forces us to confront those subtler ways in which we all pretend not just at who we are, but who we want to be. I wanted to believe, absolutely. Again, private investigator and Storm's former bodyguard, Jay Sulia. And then, of course, my own greed. Uh, I'm sure that's just human nature that you're thinking about all that money. Oh, crud, I'm going to be rich. I can do anything I want. Ernie Ferguson, one of Storm's photographers. There was a dream there. It was phony. It was fake. If, if we hadn't uh, run into someone who knew who she was, we probably would have gone to Puerto Rico. You know, we probably would have shot a thousand rolls of film and slides. We'd have had a great time. I'd have played golf at uh, uh, Rio Ochos or whatever it is, Ocho Rios. I'd have had a great time, you know, and I'd have come back. I'd probably went to jail. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, you know, she put a dream in our head and it didn't come true. So, you know, I, I don't hate her. I, I feel sorry for her because I think she's mixed up. I think there's just, I would hate to live like that. You know, I'd, I'd like to think I was a second baseman the Yankees, but I'm not. <laughs> Even if we can't all be second basemen for the Yankees, in theory we could be. This country was founded on the idea that our bodies and our blood are not our destiny. And according to scholar and intersex expert Dr. Alice Drager, this was the unwitting genius of the Founding Fathers and the Constitution. One of the things that the Founding Fathers did that was so very, very radical was to say what is important is that we have humanity in common and the way we get our political rights is simply by virtue of being born human, not by virtue of being born from a particular human. They decided to get rid of a genetic inheritance as being the way that you had power, getting rid of dynasties. 
which is how Europe had power systems working, was mostly through dynasties. So they were very radical, and they rejected the idea of dynasties for the United States and decided that we would, in fact, decide among ourselves who had power. That was really, really radical and very different from the anatomical conception of the past. They're talking about all men are, are created equal, this concept that there is a, something special about the human body. Um, so they still had a concept of a specialness about anatomy, but they were willing to broaden that tremendously and to say that who you are would depend on uh, much more what you did with your body than where your body came from. Since the Declaration of Independence was drafted in 1776, our society has evolved to more fully realize the promise of equality to include women, people of color, and, to some extent, people of different sexualities and genders. And in a hundred years, says psychologist and intersex specialist Dr. Tiger DeVore, a person like Storm might still be a criminal, but not for her transgressions of identity. A hundred years from now, all these categorizations are going to be seen as, as very primitive, as primitive as, as we see people uh, who were sun worshippers, you know? I mean, really, it's going to be that, that ridiculous uh, when you look back. Um, the fact is that the only uh, biological imperative is that there are going to be some individuals that make ova and some individuals that make sperm and other individuals that don't make that stuff. That's all there's going to be. So from the standpoint of procreation, we're going to be looking for people who make eggs. We're going to be looking for people who make sperm. And there are going to be a whole range of other individuals that don't make that stuff at all. And those are going to be, you know, what we used to refer to as intersex people. And the people who make eggs, you know, the people we used to refer to as females. People who make sperm and people we used to refer to as being males. That's the only biological imperative. Everything else is fluid. When that day comes, says Professor C.J. Pascoe, people like Storm will be defined by their humanity. I do think we need to think about how to sort of move forward and evolve such that you know, we could either have a plurality of categories or no categories, right? And, and, and um, some people argue for the plurality, some people argue for sort of an androgynous society, um, but I do think that's, that's the direction we need to move, move in such that people like Storm then, you know, her story would not be about her gender presentation or gender identity, but it would be about sort of how can we get her the sort of resources she needs to live a full and meaningful life, right? And, and those resources have, I think, very little to do with her, her gender identity. After months of searching, we finally located Storm in the Kauai Community Correctional Facility in Hawaii. She'd been detained for yet another Dream Team calendar shoot scam this past January. Her lawyer did not respond to our repeated requests for an interview. We also reached out to the reporter and news director at KOAA Channel 5 for comment on the segment quoted in this story, but they didn't respond. This show was produced at KRCC Radio Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Many thanks to our interns, Gracie Ramsdell, Amelia Whitmer, Leeds Malincrot-Reese, and Hans Sales. Thanks to local musician Connor Bergall of the band The Changing Colors. He composed almost all of the original music for this episode. My co-producer Jake Brownell composed a few interstitial beats heard midway through the show. Thanks also to Delaney Utterback, general manager of Radio Colorado College. For KRCC and Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. Noel Black.